Hello, I am Pete Real, a high school English and Spanish teacher, an avid reader, and an aspiring writer. Thank you for listening to the Chills at Will podcast, in which we explore the visceral beauty of literature and its connection to our culture, our history, and ourselves. Welcome to episode 132 of the Chills of Will podcast. It's a pleasure today to be joined by Morgan Talti and a little bit about him. He's a citizen of the Penobscot Indian Nation where he grew up. He teaches courses in both English and Native American studies, and he's on the faculty at the Stone Coast MFA in creative writing. His highly anticipated short story collection, Night of the Living Res, which is over my right shoulder here, is forthcoming from Tin House Books on July 5th. We're recording here on June 29th, so it is getting close. Good morning slash afternoon. How are you today? I'm good. Thanks for having me. Well, yeah, I mean, it's coming up July 5th. Like, how exciting is that? Like, what do you, what's going on? What kind of, uh, like, events are you doing for that? And, you know, how are you feeling as the publication gets near? Feeling pretty good. I feel like it's going to be here, like, really, really fast. You know how sometimes, like, a a week can take forever to go by, but it's like, we have the the 4th of July weekend. And, you know, I feel like that's just gonna go so quick. And then it's going to be Tuesday. And I'm going to be like, Oh, my God, my books out. (laughs) Um, Uh And so I'm I'm excited. I'm I'm really excited and really looking forward to doing some readings and, you know, getting out there. Um, You know, it's, you know, people are starting to slowly emerge from, you know, COVID and um, even though while it's still there, but um, no, I'm excited to be doing some readings in Bangor, Maine and Portland, Maine. And, um, New York City, um, All right. the Harvard Harvard bookstore. Yeah, so I'll be getting around. Cool. Do you know, is there any logic for the, I, I most of my podcasts actually release on Tuesday too. Do you know any, any logic for the Tuesdays for like publication days? You know, I really don't know. Um, <laughs> yeah, I have no idea. I know the, that's the first time I ever actually like heard of it. Like is when, uh. when Tin House published my book, they're like, we always publish books on it on like the second Tuesday of every month or something like that. Um, it's very strange. That is strange. So it's a New York Times best book of summer 2022. A good housekeeping. All right. Best book of summer 2022. A Lit Hub most anticipated book of the year. A Pace Magazine most anticipated book. One of Book Rise 22 great new books to read in 2022. It lives up to the hype and more. Um, you know, what is it? What is it? how did it feel to like see your name on the cover and see the cover and like know that it was, it was real. Um, it didn't feel real. <laughs> it, you know, it's like, you know, I got the, um, when the galley first came out, which is the one you have up there, kind of a little, I think a little different. Um, yeah. It had a big blurb from Tommy orange on the uh-huh. cover. And um, I just remember looking at it and I was like, it, like, did this really happen? You know, and, and, it, and it's strange. And then, you know, I got my, first set of my, my set of books that they sent me, I think like 20 or something. Mm-hmm. Um, and just like looking at the box full of these books, it's just, it's surreal. I never, yeah. I never expected to, you know, I expected to write, you know, I never expected to, you know, have this book here, you know, I never expected any of this. Uh-huh. Man. So yeah, I mean, you talk about never expecting, I love to go back and talk about, you know, growing up, 
and your relationship with language, whether that's, I mean, literally English, you, there's, a, there's a note at the end of the book about using the phonetic language, but just the idea of like, you know, I take that that was a second language or actually it sounds like in the, in the note that it, at times you spoke the language fairly well. I'm rambling here, but my whole, my whole question, I guess, is what, you know, what were you reading growing up? Was it a print rich environment? Is, you know, bilingualism a major, has that been a major part of your life? How would you kind of characterize those things? Yeah. So first let me say, I hated reading and writing as a kid. I hated it as a teenager. I didn't really start writing and like actually caring about like storytelling that was in like fiction or not or literature uh-huh. in general until I was like 18. Um, huh. I mean, I failed high school English. I had to retake it in the summer, which really, really sucked. Um, <laughs> and um, yeah, so I didn't, uh, you know, when it came to storytelling in that like mode, like I, I never really gravitated towards it. Um, and plus I think there are a lot of other, you know, factors that inhibited my ability in school, you know, mm. stuff happening at home that made me sort of less attentive to, sure. to class and stuff. Um, but I always felt like a storyteller. Like I remember growing up and just always telling stories, whether it was the teachers who would mm. tell my mom I had an overactive imagination, even though those stories had some grounding of truth in it. Um, you know, I, t- I told a teacher I worked for a moving company during the summers and, you know, she told my mom that and she's like, well, his father owns a moving company and he does, you know, do, you know what I mean? So, and I lived with him in the summertime. So I feel like I was really shaped by storytelling as it existed, you know, orally and, and visually, whether that's TV or movies or, mm-hmm. or whatnot. And when it came to like language, you know, I grew up hearing you know, I wish I knew more Penobscot and I, I, I plan to learn more, you know, because mm-hmm. the language has been revitalized and, mm-hmm. you know, being really passed down and taught now. But I mean, I grew up around the Penobscot language. Um, and, you know, I, you know, it's interesting at the end of the book, I have that note that I wrote it, you know, right. phonetically, just because, you know, I don't, I don't know how to spell the words using the alphabet that's been okay. created for the Penobscot language. So I just stuck to how I, how I thought it would look um uh-huh. and it's interesting on on facebook you'll see other people spell you know i spell wuss for example which means boy g-w-u-s right. i usually see it on facebook by other people uh-huh. being like g-w-o-s um okay. and so and it's you know people trying to do it phonetically um but it's interesting with i was just talking about this earlier today with somebody um how random words and phrases will come to me like mm. that are penobscot and um especially when i was writing the book um like the other night I was, I was just in bed and I was like, a word came to me. I was like, Oh, does that mean cat? And there's a Penobscot dictionary now. And so mm. it, you know, they're still working on it, but you can find some words. And I was like, Oh, that is how you say it. I have no idea where I heard it. I have no idea who told me. it. <laughs> um, and I was writing in a jar and there's this scene where Paige says to David, BD which means to come in. Yeah, yeah. Um, and when I was, when I wrote that scene, I was like, did I just make that up? And wow. I was like, I reached out to some people and I was like, is this how you say this? And they're like, yeah. And I was like, oh, like, I don't know. Like, it just mm-hmm. came, you know what I mean? So like, mm-hmm. I feel like subconsciously that language is just like still there. Um, you know, I know more of it than I actually think I do, um, huh. which is why I need to shame myself and start, you know, <laughs> studying, you know, with those who are teaching it. Yeah. Wow. What a metaphor, this idea that it's like, it's there. It's subconsciously there. It's, you know, you don't have necessarily worked on it or practiced that part of it in some word. Wow. That's amazing. 
No, like, and you know, the pronunciation, I guess, would be Wabanaki, right, of Maine. I, I wonder if that's like a like a generic term for Native Americans, perhaps put on by by Europeans. Uh, the Wabanaki. Wabanaki. Do the Penobscot would they consider themselves outside of that group, or is, again, is that put on from the from the external from the outside? Um, to be honest, I don't know if it's the the word is a Penobscot word. It means okay. people of the dawn or people of the first light because right. we were the first, you know, on the East Coast to see this, you know, the rising sun. Oh. Um, and so that's what, you know, this group, you know, my ancestors called themselves. And mm. I don't know. I don't know too much about the language and the history of it to say like, when exactly it became a representation of Penobscot, Passamaquoddy, Micmac, okay. and Maliseet, which are like the um, tribes in, in Maine. Okay. Um, but it is nonetheless a, a, our own word and our own way of expressing who we are. Okay. I appreciate that, that explanation. So you talk about, you know, I said, no, 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 when you're saying you didn't love to read and write, but also yes, yes, yes. Like, you know, as, as both of us being teachers, we know like you, you could be, older than you are now you can be 37 and you can pick up writing you can be 22 you know but obviously i mean you're you're a phenom of, of sore shoot if you've only been writing for those for that short amount of time and done such great work but what was it were there any light switches or eureka moments where you were just like you know where the storytelling gene or the love of storytelling became pen and paper and you know who are some of the i love to know like your generation i'm i've got you by maybe 11 or 12 years like I love that that smoke signals reference in the in the title story, you know, with uh with Victor and Thomas and all that. Yeah. Like, were you reading Sherman Alexi? Were you reading? Were you Harry Potter kid? Like, kind of what was your generation? Not that you couldn't read older. You know, older yeah. Stuff, but um, actually, Harry Potter was, I think, the only book I ever actually like read when I was younger. <laughs> um, I, I think that was it. And I, to be honest, I did not start with the first book. I think I'd watch the movies and I jumped into yeah, yeah, like the yeah. new books coming out. But um. No, I think, yeah, I mean, I definitely did read, you know, Lone Ranger and Tonto Fist Fight in Heaven and, you know, his, his other works. And I don't want to necessarily say my work is influenced by by that stuff. It definitely is influenced by, I think, like the long trajectory of Native American fiction, you know, starting all the way back in the early 1900s, um, you know, up to that point where I feel like Alexi kind of the landscape sort of changed a bit and mm. um, positioned storytelling in a, in a different, it made people talk. And I think sure. what came after, you know, you know, think of Tommy Orange, you know, Therese Marie Mailhot, uh, mm-hmm. Tony Jensen, you know, um, Chelsea Hicks, you know, Brandon Hobson, you know, there's tons of writers out there, you know, native writers that have come after and have sort of established a, broader spectrum of voices yes. that are yes. coming from all over the place but i mean i was um yeah def- i mean i his work was you know a touchstone um i was also oddly i feel like the work that really got me writing was actually jack kerouac okay um yeah I, because every summer i would go visit my i was born in bridgeport connecticut and my mom right. took me to the penobscot nation in maine when i was six and that's where i grew up for the rest of my life and throughout okay. the year but for about a month and a half, I'd spend um, the summers with my father in Bridgeport. Mm. And I was always taking the Greyhound bus and the Greyhound bus, you know, is like, or buses in general are, you know, oh, a staple of Kerouac type of, you know, yeah, on the road yeah. stuff. Um, and so I don't know why I just, I read on the road and I just, there was some feeling in it that resonated with me and mm. my movement that I had done, you know, 
twice a year, you know, for yeah. oh, how many years? 14, like 13 years, you know, okay. you know, these long 12 hour bus rides that had layovers. And I just, I don't know. I remember reading Kerouac and like, it may have been his voice that just swept me away. And I was like, okay, I like to tell stories orally. Maybe I can do it this way. Mm-hmm. And I remember trying to write that first summer I read him and it was just, it was so bad. Um, <laughs> but I just kept practicing. I kept trying, I kept reading, you know, I went through all the beat, you know, writers. Um, uh, and then I just went everywhere, re- started reading everything I could. Uh-huh. Oh man. Well, so we'll, we'll add you to the list of Connecticut, Connecticutians with, you know, ocean yeah. and that kind of right. Young writers who've done incredible things, you know, with the Connecticut connection. It was so incredibly cliche. I did a teaching program right out of college and there were probably, I don't know, 15 males, part of it. And I think like 10 of us were reading on the road that, that summer, (laughs) you know, like a life change and just, you know, so that's very interesting. And I tried to read it again a couple of years ago and I was like, I can't read this. Um, Not, not bashing Kerouac. I mean, cause like I read it and I was like, his voice is just so beautiful and his Uh prose is just so beautiful, but I was like, I cannot get past like four pages that makes sense maybe it's one of those you just read one time you know like just I've yeah it's it interesting cool. i i get afraid to look back at works i really loved like mm-hmm. when i was younger because i've done it a couple times and i'm like why did i like this you know what i mean in, in a way that like i look at the notes i've left myself but it's kind of interesting because it's uh, like a history of like a history of your your thought in a right. way you know because like i always write in books so like i look back i'm like why did i underline that uh, phrase uh, you know what was i thinking but yeah i there are books I return to and I'm still just like, whoa, you know, they were good. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's cool. Like the, uh, we'll put it in a museum, you know, all the notes you have in these books and then like inform. Yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Man. Again, coming from a slightly younger generation, ideas of like representation. I mean, you know, obviously if you know where to look, there's, there are great writers. You talk about going all the way back to the 1900s, native Americans, you know, I mean, now with, with um, Sterling Harjo, you know, I guess more of a screenwriter and, all those people you mentioned, you have an incredible all-star lineup, you know, that they give you blurbs. Yeah, yeah which I'm very that. thankful for. Right. Did you feel like you saw yourself in literature? Did you, did that matter to you? Was any literature good literature? Like, how did you feel about, I guess, just representation? Um, growing up? Yes. Yeah, I think, you know, I, I feel like I, recog- I, I recognized growing up and I think, you know, for example, when Smoke Signals came out, like mm-hmm. every like native like at least back home on the Penobscot nation, like was what, like every native person was in that theater the day it released mm-hmm. and we're in like the front rows, you know, they're going back and seeing it again and again and again. Mm-hmm. We watched the show and, or the movie and, you know, native American studies, you know, okay. it was really the first time I think, you know, indigenous, like indigenous storytelling had made its way into like really big mains. I, there, I mean, obviously there's Louise Erdrich and, mm-hmm. um, uh, James Welch and you know right. other other famous writers who were getting a lot of um, you know readership but nothing visual right and but you know as I got older I was like I started to feel like the representation was starting to become more one-dimensional it was starting to become sort of um, and this isn't a criticism I'm not criticizing any any um, previous indigenous writers but I just started to feel like 
you know, white mainstream readers kept wanted or demanded, you know, performative indigenous literature, literature that wasn't literature that was giving them, you know, as Louis, Louis Owens, who's a native scholar said, you know, a comfortable, easy tour of colorful Indian country. Yes, yes, Um, And, you know, it's, it's interesting that you mentioned, you know, I thought spatially about that question, like, did you see, you know, yourself represented in there? I didn't see it, but I saw the opportunity for it or like what I felt was the opportunity for it. Okay. And, you know, I started, that's really, you know, the, I think when I really started to truly write was when I started to recognize that tradition I belong to mm. um, in that tradition. I think that needed to continue to change and develop and grow. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I was working on this book and, you know, trying to create it in a way that it came across as, you know, not a performative, not a performance about, you know, dancing indigenous people, right? Mm-hmm. But about human beings, what they'll do to live, what they'll do to survive, what they'll do to love, to forgive, all of that stuff. And um, I feel like in the, in the past, you know, five, six years, the landscape has shifted and there's a larger space where works are being published that aren't actually offering that colorful, easy mm-hmm. tour of, you know, Indian mm-hmm. country, you know, they're there, for example, you know, the prologue to they're there is just like this unflinching, unforgiving oh. essay, you know, and Man. it's just, it, it just, it, 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 like, I don't know how, but I feel like that, that opening somehow contextualized a revolution that's maybe happening right now mm. um, with indigenous fiction and has made, and has sort of laid the foundation for other stories and other authors to come to come out. Okay. Um, yeah. Yeah. I, I, I think, I don't, I don't think Tommy Orange is very much on social media, like good for him. Good for him. Right. The, the cesspool that is, you know, Twitter and all that, but like, man, I want so much more. And like that prologue just by itself, right. With about the coin. Right. Yeah. It's just like, I could, I could talk for hours just about that prologue. I mean, wow, yeah, just stunning, powerful. Like you talked about that's, very interesting so you feel like it was a like a turning point in many ways i do yeah i think the book did uh, you know a lot of things um a lot of things right you know um and i think just positioned it's interesting if you read the book that well you've read the book obviously but i don't know if you remember there's you know so many sort of like metaphors about like lenses and gazes and Mm -hmm. looking um and you know the, the book is very much about you know perspective right there's all these various perspectives in the book i think there's right. 12 characters or something which is an outrageous amount of characters <laughs> to handle and he, and he does off. it yeah. yeah and you know he really i think i think the book the prologue everything um just created this place for you know multiple voices to come out mm. and yeah i mean it's been a, it's been i don't i don't it's been a few years for sure but i mean i don't think there's any mention if, if so it's definitely minimized of reservation right they're they're urban it's in yeah. Oakland in the Bay Area, kind of close to me up in Sacramento yep. here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Talked about like the, the, the performative writing that you feel like a kind of one dimensional. How, how do you, not that you're an expert on like the history of publishing and, but like, do you, do you think that was like the editors? That's kind of like what got past the editors, the gatekeepers, so to speak, was like more performative. Or do you feel like that was the native writers consciously or subconsciously, you know, kind of writing to the white gaze? Like how did, how do you think that, happened yeah i think um big publishing had set standards for what they considered authentic and what was authentic was what sold right sure sure. um and i can't remember it was jj amaro amoroso wilson um 
who I listen, he's, he's a novelist. Um, and I was listening to him talk about the Latino boom, you know, Gabriel Garcia Marquez. And um, there, are, there are three other main writers around that time. And there was this other writer who was not part of like that group who was not well known. And he mm-hmm. sent a story to an editor at a big magazine. And they're like, we, you know, cause all of the work that was Gabriel Garcia Marquez and all of them were doing had this like magical realism mm-hmm. element to it. And that's what white readers came to know, yeah. you know, that type of literature for. So when this guy, or maybe it was a woman, I can't even remember, you know, approached this editor with this story and was like, Hey, I'm, I'm a Latino. I have this, I have this story and it didn't have any of the features that the other stories did. Mm-hmm. The editors was like, this isn't, this isn't considered Latino literature because it's not Authentic. doing X, Y, and Z. Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, and so I know um editors have pushed writers to push them into specific corners to be like oh add this maybe you know to make uh, it more appealing yeah. it's never happened to me i've been asked you know by editors to explain some things sometimes um which i'm always hesitant to do um unless it's really 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 needed um but you know i got lucky with tin house in that they were you know shared the same mindset as i did they were mm-hmm. like let's put something out there that's you know you know, cutting against, you know, this, you know, going with what going with the positive changes, I think that's hard, yeah. that's happening. Man, I have, I have such a, I have an, an image right now, of the last scene, the last image of the title story, you know, where it's mom and Paige and, um, and D or David, and, you know, they're hugging in the, in the van, the van that's literally like filming like events from the, from the reservation, just that idea of like the gaze from outside and like performative and yeah. You know, makes it even yeah and then even the end of that too i was thinking about it i was like i'm gonna end this like a play because i I feel like it ends very Mm. much like a like a play but not in like a or i hope not not in like a sensationalized way you know um but yeah i think the the idea of performance is was always on my mind Hmm. um yeah yeah it's very interesting so what uh you know as far as turning points well i guess i'll first ask you about you mentioned some, but I mean, who were some of, who were and are some of the writers who really just, whether they write the same way as you do or not, whether you've, you know, purposely emulated them, who are some of the writers who really thrilled you throughout the years? Um, I have to give the obligatory shout out to Anton Chekhov. Um, All right. <laughs> his, his short fiction and his plays, you know, were just wonderful. Um, geez, let's see. Um, Karen Russell, I absolutely mm-hmm. just, you know, love um louise erdrick obviously yeah. uh richard van camp is a first nations okay. writer um his book the lesser blessed is just phenomenal um it, i just love that book so much um alice monroe hmm. um geez let's see dennis johnson raymond carver hmm. um god i feel like i could go on and on i gotcha. um, I got yeah. You. No, I know that's a tough question. It's like, I mean, you know, you'll, I know I was about ready to get up and go look at my bookshelf and just start reading <laughs> you off all the names. <laughs> no, I appreciate that. I, I see, I definitely see some Carver in your writing and I don't know all of those writers, but I see some, some of those, those influences. Um, so, you know, when did you, was there a Eureka moment or Eureka moments where it's like, I can write, I want to write people are going to, people like this, you know? Yeah. I really don't think there was a Eureka moment until maybe like I got a book deal um, with Tin House. I mean, because like I had always been told I was like, or maybe, you know, maybe actually, no, it was before then a little bit. Maybe when I published a couple stories in in some big magazines, like Narrative Magazine and, and Shenandoah and places. But, you know, I was always told 
when I was like 19 and 20, because I went to a community college for three years mm -hmm. before I transferred to Dartmouth College. Um, and I took creative writing classes at the community college where I had met my first mentor, who was just a phenomenal teacher, two mentors, really. Um, mm -hmm. And they were both always like, you're extremely talented. You know, you have, you know, you should pursue this. And like, I didn't believe them yet. I still did it, I think, okay. because I didn't want to do anything else. So I was even like, well, if they're lying to me, I'm going to be mad. But at the same time, I'm just like, I can't see myself doing anything else. Um, so it really, I feel like it just clicked. I mean, I still doubt myself as a writer. You know, I feel like there's always that fear that you wrote the last good thing. You know what I mean? Mm. And, but you have to remind yourself, no, you didn't, you know, there's still, right. you're only going to get better. Um, and yeah, I, I think it was a long process and something I still question. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm, I mean, I'm sure like there's all kinds of life experiences that have led to your writing. Like, I mean, for all of us going back to when we were born or whatever jobs, I mean, did you get involved right after college in, in writing, like for, for a career or being a TA or being a professor, you know, was there a lot of like living out in the world and getting like material ammunition for your writing? Yeah. So when I graduated from Dartmouth, um, I was sick of school. I was just so mm -hmm. tired of it. Cause like I had spent three years at a community college and then four years at Dartmouth just for my undergrad. So seven years for an undergrad, it just was, I was like, I'm done. I'm not yeah. eating cafeterias anymore. I'm not sleeping in dorms. <laughs> and so I went and did an MFA, the low residency MFA um, at Stone Coast. And that, you know, you only went to campus or wherever they were holding it twice a year for 10 days. Okay. And then in between, you would just work one-on-one -on -one with a mentor. Um, and so during that time, I really just, I just wrote, I mean, I didn't have like an advanced degree to teach any, I had a degree in native American studies, you know, I didn't, which doesn't really, I probably could have found a job on the, on, you know, working on the reservation, but, you know, I just chose to write and to focus on it um, until eventually a local area university, you know, I applied and they're like, Oh, we'll put you in the writing center for now. And I just started to teach more and more and more. But yeah, I think in those, those early years, it was just really writing and living too, you know, do, you know, just, just hanging around and, mm -hmm. you know, I didn't do too much, uh, working, you know, for money. <laughs> <laughs> Night of the Living Res is, you know, again, right above me here. And it's the one that comes out July 5th. Buy it through Tin House. I always, I'm, I'm never good at this. So I'll ask you ahead of time, like any good like local bookstores or, you know, that you recommend or like places where you should buy the book? Um, yeah. So if you're in Maine, um, the Briar Patch in Bangor, Maine would be a great place to, um, buy from i think there is um you know birch bark books in minneapolis is a good independent bookseller um powell's where else king english oh the king's english bookshop in black walnut books i'm doing an event with them coming up uh, that could be a great place to order from as well okay on my website i have links to a couple um places beyond the obvious you know right. amazon and stuff and that's just morgantalty.com? It is morgantalty.com. Okay, cool, cool, cool. What were some of the seeds for the book? Well, I guess even backing up, I mean, the book, they're thematically linked short stories. I don't know if that's the, the term, you, I mean, the term you'd use or something different, but, and then, you know, they were published in, in journals in recent years. You know, the, the idea of like, you know, when they're all published in separate magazines and such, like, did you have trouble wrangling them, making them into one collection? So I guess when I ask, you know, seeds for the book, 
was there a, a, a big idea, big idea with a capital B, capital I, or was it kind of like they all come together and it's like, okay, this, these work. Yeah. The, the, so there was no, there was no big idea guiding the collection um, until I sort of stumbled into it. I think I was like, cause I, the first story I wrote for this whole collection was actually the title story night of the living okay. res. Um, the ending though was not the ending that's there now. It was mm-hmm. just a different, completely different ending very quiet ending um and so i wrote that in 2015 and when i went into my mfa program i was like oh i'll write a story collection and between 2015 and 2017 when i went into the program i had written a couple other stories from david's perspective mm-hmm. um and so i was like oh i i'll set the parameters as okay i'm going to start writing david's stories when he's very young and move all the way until he's old like that was like my vision for the collection it was just mm-hmm. going to move chronological in time mm-hmm. And I wrote like 15 or 16 stories from David's perspective. And I got to the end and I was like, box, like, this is not, you know, this is not a good collection because you think of a, when you think of it, like there was nothing, even thematically, I don't think there was really anything like the only similarity was that it was told from the same person over and over again sure. and, and moved in time. And I could just imagine a reader getting so sick of that because of the story collection, it's usually you finish one story and you pick up a new one yeah. or open, turn the pages, a completely new story, new mm-hmm. characters, everything. And so I'd set it aside and I wrote the story burn and which is the opening in night yeah. of the living res. And I had no intention to make that have date, uh, have that be date or D or David. You know, I was so used to writing in David's perspective that I just put the letter D there as a placeholder. I was like, I'll find uh, his name later. And then I was like, what is his name? And then I was like, what if I put two E's after it? And I did. And the moment I saw it on the page, I was like, wait a minute, is this yeah. David all grown up? And then I was like, yes. And then I was like, well, what happened? So then it became, the whole collection came back to life again. And I was oh. like, okay, I need to explore D and Fellas. And the more I wrote those stories, um, the more I started to see this very, very little subtle you know, arc, but it was not above the reader's head. It was like below the surface. Mm-hmm. And it was that question, what happened, right? Hmm. Um, you know, what happened to this, this guy and his family. Um, and once I knew that I was like, okay, now it'll be easy to order these and, and organize them. And I think you had mentioned, you know, what was it like, you know, um, putting, to, putting them together. The David stories were pretty easy to put together just because they were already chronological. Um, right. So like, I couldn't do much, you know, movement with those, maybe the ones in the middle I could have, but um, the D ones, I really had to think emotionally. I was like, okay, where, you know, I had to like, sort of like feel, go trust my gut and where I was placing them. And, you know, and then when I strung them all together, it's obviously cutting the redundancies out, you know, what would have appeared in as yeah, a single yeah. story versus, you know, it being with, with the whole group. And so, yeah, I just feel like I got lucky. <laughs> I just mm. listened to the story and I kept writing until I stopped hearing anything. Mm. And I was like, I think it's done. Yeah, I think that's so cool. I mean, maybe I'm, you know, reading too much into it, whatever, but like, you know, from David, the, you know, the formal full name as a kid, and he was, you know, idealistic and such, and, you know, sweet kid with his toy soldiers and all that. And then, you know, D, like, yeah. you know, it could be just like a nickname, like, oh, what's up, Dave? What's up, D? But just kind of yep. like, just a different person, but also, but not. Yep. Um, kind of meta in the story, Food for the Common Cold. I feel like there's a quote that sums up your collection. It's, quote, uh, as if all our problems weren't buried cold below, but were actually right there on the surface facing us all. As if all of our problems weren't buried cold below, but we're actually right there on the surface facing us all. I mean, that's a lot of your writing. I mean, there aren't a lot of like, you know, um, 
what's the word? I don't know, fireworks and crazy, incredible, whoa, actions and moments and events, but there's so much going on under the surface, fairly commonplace things in, in the world, but they just, they, they speak so loudly. Yeah, I think I was, you know, so interested in, you know, just animating that, uh-huh. so, that sort of like quotidian life, right? You know, the yes. daily sort of, the daily struggles and successes that people, you know, deal with, right? Mm-hmm. And focusing on them as, as people, right? You know, and they weren't Penobscot, they are indigenous. And so mm-hmm. it's like also bringing that to the page as well. But yeah, that is, a, I think that is a really good quote to sort of like, yeah, that encapsulates, you know, what the, what the collection's doing. Mm-hmm. Holy crap, there's a lot of cigarettes, there's a lot of smoking in the book, in the collection. <laughs> I mean, uh, I think David was like 14 or 15, maybe seven. He was like 14. He's just like, hey, mom, give me some cigarettes from the store. He's like, all right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which is what I did when I was 14, 15. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Themes, to sum up your book, is, is impossible. There's just so much going on, so much greatness. But, you know, there's a lot of, kind of like we were just talking about, there's a lot of idleness and just waiting and inaction. But inaction is, in a way, action, you know. Um, Fellas, is that how you say the name? Yeah, Fellas. Yeah. Right, so Fellas and D, like, they're waiting to go to school. They're waiting for the porcupine, which they get, and they can sell for 20 bucks. They're waiting for mom, you know, get me some medicines, you know, what she was saying. And they're going for their methadone when they're a little bit older, right? In a field of stray caterpillars is one story. Tabitha, right, is, like, the ex-girlfriend. And it's just, like... The phone keeps ringing. He doesn't get it. He doesn't answer it. He doesn't move. He doesn't act. I don't know if I'm mixing up the stories, right? But he like has a chance. He's basically like, hey, come back home. Like we need to talk. And he's like, yeah. nah. Yeah. <laughs> right. And, you know, yep. there's something very important could have happened maybe, but he just, you know, I wonder about inaction. Am I kind of reading that correctly? Yeah. Yeah. You definitely are. I think, you know, action is character. You know, when characters do something that defines who they are, mm-hmm. but also when characters don't do something that, shows who they are um and i think in many ways you know this inaction and in a lot of these stories with with d and david and and really any of the i feel like all of the characters at some point experience some form of inaction you know i think it's representative of perhaps their inability to communicate due to you know tragedy and and trauma you know i think d in, in that particular story you know when he says no to tabitha and he doesn't go back home you know that's his inability to form a relationship perhaps because because of the trauma he's experienced, because he's mm-hmm. probably afraid that, you know, things won't work the way they're supposed to, right? Mm-hmm. You know, if, if she had asked him that question when he was older, maybe it would have been a different answer, right? right. But, you know, in, at that point in time, he's sort of like, he can't act, you know, and there are so many moments where people can't act in real life either. Mm-hmm. That's for sure. You talk about like traumas and, you know, traumas and legacies for sure, you know, are, are themes that come through. There's uh, one really heartbreaking scene where where David becomes Robbie. Quote unquote. Yeah. Robbie was his what grandmother's brother. Yeah. Um, who she maybe maybe because of some inaction or just being a kid or as an accident where he died when he was really young. And, you know, David shows some sweet moments where he, he acts like Robbie for his grandma or, you know, he'll lie to her to make her feel better because there's a demen- dementia. I mean, is that safe to say? Yeah, dementia, Alzheimer's, something right. like that. Yeah, going on. Um, you know, just ideas of like, we don't necessarily know all of the traumas, but I mean, people all over the world, we drink to escape, right? Um, fellas one time literally says that he's like, hey, my aunt's coming over. She's going to be crying. Let's go get drunk. <laughs> yeah. Right? yeah. Like, like so straightforward, yeah. right? What, what are, I, I feel so, so like 
naive or whatever. I, I keep meaning to look it up. But what are pins? Are those like benzos? Yeah, Klonopin. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah. Right. And so it's like grandma, grandma has this smirk on her face that that I just such a strong image where it's like she's, you know, even with the dementia, it's like she's seeing through David and David sees it. Yeah. And it's kind of like, and she says, you know, be good. And he's just like, what does that mean? Like now, like as I get older, like to yeah. see me kind of like spiraling, you know. Um, there's one quote that is their problems shaping others, their problems shaping others. Which yep. I think is just so much about like legacy and traumas, you know. I, and I, it gets me thinking about you know how many generations back was was Davis family speaking the native language? You know, were they pushed off the reservation into these you know kill the Indian, save the man type of yeah. you know all these things right that aren't necessarily mentioned, but they're there. Yeah, they're there for sure. So I wonder again, <laughs> sorry to keep saying it, but being fairly young, how you so well wrote about trauma and legacy without writing directly always about trauma and legacy yeah i think um i mean one i'm, I'm no stranger to I, I, every and most people aren't strangers to intergenerational trauma right you know what we what we've inherited from our ancestors yeah. um that pain that's you know part of us that's been carried you know biologically into our you know mm. dna basically and but growing up, there, there was that, but then there was also the fact that, you know, I was around alcoholics, I was around drug addicts, I was around gambling addicts, I was around violence, I was around, um, you know, severe substance abuse, I was around moments of neglect, I was around, you know, a lot of these things that these characters experience. And so, for me, it was kind of like, well, I know, I know this, you know what I mean? It's like, I, I've, I've experienced it. I've, I felt that pain. Um, I felt also the goodness that, you know, emerges when people come together to try to get over something. Hmm. Um, and so it kind of was sort of like second nature to me. I think, I think that's why it didn't also come across as sort of like this sensationalized, victimized, right. you know, um, trope, you know, that I think mm -hmm. gets overused. Mm-hmm. There, there are all kinds of longings in the book, longings for normalcy, you know, like, you know, the, the, again, the scene, was it the first story or the second story where David, you know, has the soldier man? I think it's the second one, right? Second one. Yeah. Cause burn is about the hair and the freezing. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but you know, his soldier man and he loses one of them and he's thinking about it. Like he, like it's a real person. Right. And he's missing his father, of course. And his dad keeps sending them those, you know, those soldier men, there's Frick, whose name is pretty funny because it's not like he got his name yeah. from just saying fricking and yeah all the time right yeah he's like the new guy he's the new guy there and he's not smoothly coming into the family to say the least right and then again like i talked about with like tabitha where you know even if david wants some sort of normalcy there's no right choice with tabitha if he does say let's stay together he knows he's not going to be happy but he's also not going to be happy without that right yeah balance mom says to frick quote the whole world is off, but you have to regain balance. I wonder how you kept from making the story stories like sad, 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 depressing, depressing, and also the opposite, like, you know, cheesy and, you know, over the top. Yeah. I, like yeah, I, I, yeah, it's a good question. I feel like I know when something's being, when something is too cloy, when something's being too cloying, yeah, it's when it's cloying. too overly sweet. So I always yeah. pull back and I think I know in my gut when you know something is you know too much in like a negative way um i think just because of what i 
what I see and what I don't want to see. You know, we talked at length earlier about this changing landscape and it's like, you know, I don't want these elements to perform. So I feel like I just instinctually, you know, with practice, you know, moved away from, you know, putting these, you know, find, you know, making sure everything was balanced out. I think, mm-hmm. you know, I don't, I didn't set out to make this book funny. You know, there are funny moments in it, yeah, yeah. but like the thing with humor is, is like, if you make somebody laugh, you know, they'll follow you wherever. And, mm. you know, I think, you know, humor is, is a big part of the book. You know, I read Byrne uh, at the University of Maine and a colleague there, he was like, there was a and a at the end and he said something. He's like, I didn't realize how funny this story was until you read it. Yeah. And because I think it's hilarious, like that this guy got his hair stuck in the snow. But at the same time, it's like also that that has the other side of the coin where it's like, holy crap, you know? But yeah, I think it was about just finding the humor in some of this stuff, but then also letting some of the stuff just be as it is, right? right? Yeah, that makes sense. Such a funny collection. I mean, there's some laugh out loud parts. Do you, like, even just the way it was described is funny enough, but like, could you tell me the whole joke? Like the one, something about a, a brown animal wiping with a wiping his butt with a white like do you yeah i don't i don't know the whole like a full joke i think it is but like like the character i don't know the full joke i just feel like there was this joke about a white bear like a brown bear wiping its ass with a white rabbit i have no idea where it came from i don't know if it's a real joke to be honest yeah i'll just say that but i for some reason maybe i've thought about it like when i wrote it in that story it's like Mm. i think it's real now or something (laughs) David, in many ways, is forced to grow up fast. I mean, there are moments that are where there are big time role reversals where he's the parent, you know, and some of the other characters, some of the other young characters, they're the parent. You know, David turns off the lights one time when he comes home for his mom. She's kind of like, um, you know, maybe maybe drunk and like, you know, in the main room, you know, didn't didn't go to bed on her on, on purpose. You know, he puts her to bed. He takes Paige and he he puts her in like like a shed type of place, but he you know he gives yeah. her nice pillows and how how much older is Paige approximately than David? Probably about like nine or ten years older. So, than, that's what I was figuring. Yeah. yeah. Okay. You know, like I said, it's role reversal where she's talking to her grandma about her dead brother. Talk, he's talking to her, and there's the line, "Fellas," and others are saying it. How did we? How do we get here? Literally at times, how do we get here? How? Why the heck are we here? And how? So how do we get out of here? And I feel like that informs a lot of the book. Did you feel like there was like a main essential question, that or another? Or is that just one of many? Like, how do we get out of here? And how do we get here? I think that, to be honest, I feel like that and variations of that question are sort of like the main, the, the main question, you know, because it's like, literally, it's the thing that jump started my whole idea mm-hmm. for the for the rest of the book, you know, when I discovered D was, you know, oh, what happened to him? How did he get in this situation? And, you know, it, it very much, you know, by the time you read Night of the Living Res, and the name means thunder, like you, you get the sense, you're like, okay, I know what happened. Like, I, mm-hmm. this will, it would explain why the family is this way. Um, and so, like, I feel like that moment in Half Light, the one, the one you just quoted from, you know, how did how did we get here? How did I get here? Mm-hmm. You know, is you know, like, the guiding question for for David and, and D in this book. Definitely, the second to last story is the title story. How would I pronounce it? Pugwajis, Pugwajis, uh, Pugwajis, Pugwajis. 
what what would be the best analog for that? I mean, I they're not quite like I don't know children snatchers. Like, uh, how would you? Yeah, no, they're so pugwidgies. I actually believe is it's a pretty common word for a lot of tribes to use it. It's not a Penobscot word. Um, it's I feel like it's an Ojibwe word. Okay. Um, which means little people, but I think in Penobscot, and I think I put this in the story, they're called Mecham West. Yes. And their the mom had corrected her, I think, him, right? And said, this Yeah, is yeah, they're Mecham uh-huh. West. Yeah. And um, so they're, they're just, I grew up hearing them as little people spirits that would, you know, steal things. Um, and so it was, they took the blame for things that went missing. You know, my mom, my mom uh, okay. couldn't find her lighter and she's like those goddamn Pugwidgees, you know, okay. she couldn't find that $20 bill she had that was those uh-huh. goddamn Pugwidgees. Um, my friends and I would joke and tease one of our younger friends that there was a Pugwidgee, you know, living near his house and, you know, mm. get them all you know, scared and stuff. Um, but yeah, I don't know what the equivalent would be in, in English other than, you know, like little people's spirits. Um, yeah, no, there doesn't, need, there doesn't need to be a direct translation, right? I mean, it yeah. Is, is there the connotation, does the connotation exist for them of like being kind of like mischievous, right? Like not evil, but just like as, as kids would do that kind of thing. Yeah. I think Pugwidgees are more, or, or Mecham West, and there might be another word for them too in our language. They're like tricksters almost. Yeah. They're kind of like trickster figures, but I wouldn't necessarily say they're tricksters. I feel like they're just more like you said, mischievous. Okay. Um, whereas I think the, the word I use in the, in the story Gugooks, um, or in the book Gugooks are like more of like the, the bad spirits. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So like in that story, I mean, you got the, you got the Jordan Peele going where it's like a different type of like, not horror story, but it's, there's a tension for sure. Right. There's the, the TV in an, I think, I don't think there's anybody in the house, but it's what, it's what not, not night of living dead, which is one of those, is it night, night of living res. Yeah. But no, but I'm sorry. What was the movie that was playing the zombie movie? Oh, um, I think the original Night of the Living Dead. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah. There's that going on, and you know, it's it's dark, and there's just so much uneasiness and tension. And then, of course, you know, without giving away, one of the really formative, horrible, you know, experiences happens, and that family comes together at the end in a in a horrible way. But there's we talked about that image of them just you know holding on for dear life, and it's really, yeah. you know, again with the with the the cameramen who are there filming for a documentary from off the reservation, from off the, out of the area. There's just such an area, an idea of like somebody's watching you and, you know, looking over your shoulder and you just do a great job building tension. Like, are you a horror movie guy? Are you like, you know, again, it's not classic horror, but I wonder how you were able to achieve that, that, that ambiance, that tension. Yeah, I'm not. Yeah, I would not. I would not say I'm a horror writer or even like a horror like person in general. Like, I mean, I I like horror movies and stuff. I'm not, you know, I'm not throwing on, you know, Friday the 13th and, you know, all those movies, you know, every Friday night. But um, I don't know. There was something there was something really alluring about the idea of the of zombies um, as like a metaphor in a way. And mm. actually one of the questions, and this isn't on the book anywhere in, in the synopsis, it's on um, the online synopses, mm. um, but the opening of the of the uh, synopsis reads something like, oh yeah, the, the original question is how do the living come back to life? And throughout the collection, I mean, it is, I wouldn't call D dead, right? But there is this like deadness in a lot of people and it's like, mm. how do they restart? How do they come back? Um, mm. And I feel like that, is in and of itself really scary right um because i've met 
people who have been in those situations where it's like, are they going to come back? Right. Like, are they, mm-hmm. they're going to be okay. And that's some scary stuff. Um, and like, I feel like that juxtaposed with this horror element, I think kind of allowed it to go a little bit deeper, you know, it used it as maybe an extra like shovel just to, to keep digging. Right. Yeah. I mean, some of the scariest stories are not over the top, you know, blood and gore. It's just, just yeah. that's just that tension there. I think of like, um, where are you going? Where have you been? Joyce Carol Oates. Yep. Yeah. Right. Just that, uh, just that weird character, the Arnold or whatever. Yeah. Um, I'd love to know about future project. Again, huge congrats on the book. I'm going to, you know, promote it in my, my neck of the woods, my little part of the world. What an incredible debut. Well, thank you. Huge congrats. But so I don't want to, you know, I'm sure you're just like deep breath. But if you aren't thinking of the uh, thinking ahead, any any future projects that you're that you have going? Yeah, I have a um, novel that my agent just sent out um, yes. it's called Fire Exit, which is really the whole situation of the novel is happening because of this idea of blood quantum. So the conflict mm. in the book, the conflict in the story comes from this this blood quantum, this you know federal or a colonial tool, you know, to keep track of who's native and mm. who's not. And I'm also working on a sort of like a memoir and essays, kind of like a dark David Sedaris type approach. <laughs> a dark yeah. David Sedaris, wow. Yeah, if people, want to, if people are curious what that might look like, um, one of the stories is The Gambler, which is free to read at Narrative Magazine. Okay. Yeah. I'll put the link. Cool. The Gambler. Okay. Oh, man, I'm trying to imagine David Sedaris. Okay. All right. Cool. Yeah. <laughs> Well, again, congratulations and thank you so much. And, uh, you know, shoot, maybe we'll be talking when the novel comes out or we can, we can talk again. Thank you so much for letting us into your uh, prodigious brain. We appreciate it. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. And I'd love to be back again. Awesome. What a pleasure it's been to speak today to Morgan Talty and continued great luck to him with his writing. Thanks again for listening to the Chills of Will podcast. You can now subscribe on Apple, leave a five-star review. You can also ask for the podcast by name using Alexa. Find it on Stitcher, Spotify, and on Amazon Music. You can follow me on Instagram where I'm at Chills of Will Podcast or on Twitter where I'm at Chills of Will PO1. How about your social media info? Um, yeah, so I'm on Twitter at Morgan underscore J underscore Talty. Morgan J Talty. And then okay. in- Instagram, I am uh, at Morgan J Talty. Awesome. Thank you. This is a passion project of mine, a DIY operation, and I'd love for your help in promoting what I'm convinced is a unique and spirited look at an often ignored art form. The intro song for the Chills of Will podcast is Wind Down Instrumental, and the other song played on the episode is Hoops Instrumental by Matt Whitehour, and both songs are used through archesaudio.com. Please tune in for episode 133 with Nick Bucola, a writer, lecturer, and teacher who specializes in the area of American political thought. He is the author of The Fire is Upon Us, James Baldwin, William F. Buckley Jr., and the Debate Over Race in America, as well as a fellow Santa Clara University alum. And this episode airs on July 14th. For now, thanks again for listening. And I hope that these quarantine days bring you texts by writers with mad skills like Morgan Talty, whose work, like Night of the Living Res, gives you chills at will. (laughs) 